0: the word sustainability i don't think existed nor did the word environmentalist but i think cole was thinking a lot about sustainability and balance in the natural environment can we live within it
1: hi i'm andrew goldstein and this is the art inc a podcast from art news where the art world meets the real world bringing each week's biggest story down to earth so right now there is a powerful highly ambitious and deeply relevant art show in new york that weaves together the histories of conservation and American art in a way most people haven't seen before. It's really terrific, and I'll tell you how to get there. Just go to 24th Street in Chelsea, head west a little bit more until you hit the Hudson River, and then head north about 110 miles until you hit the Rip Van Winkle Bridge in Catskill, New York. There, on either side of the river, are the historic homes of the famed Hudson River School painters Thomas Cole and Frederick Church. And inside those homes sprawls the show, titled Cross-Pollination, Heed, Coal, Church, and Our Contemporary Moment. With art that spans the mid-19th century to today, the exhibition is built around a suite of 16 bravura paintings of hummingbirds by the too-little-known Hudson River School artist Martin Johnson Heed, and it takes wing from there, exploring a network of interconnections between art, science, and the natural world. But perhaps what is most interesting to me is the story of the relationships at the heart of the show between Heed, Thomas Cole, and Frederick Church, three of the greatest visionary artists America has ever known. So today, to talk about these artists, what we owe them, and the exhibition they inspired, I'm very happy to have Thomas Cole National Historic Site Curator, Kate Minkaneri, on the show today. Thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Kate.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today.
1: So you're one of the organizers of Cross Pollination, having worked alongside colleagues at the Olana Partnership, Bard College, and Crystal Bridges. You're also an expert in the artist Thomas Cole, and that is where I'd like to start. So tell me, who was Thomas Cole, where did he come from, and what led him to base his studio at the foot of the Catskill Mountains?
0: Thomas Cole was an artist working in the United States in the 19th century, and he was one of the first painters to visually represent the American landscape as something that was unique and worth preserving. He's credited with launching what's now called the Hudson River School of Art, which was a major movement in American painting that looked at landscape. And the painters associated with this movement presented landscape with great importance, equal to that of history. Cole actually was born in England. And he grew up in Lancashire, where the Industrial Revolution was kind of rolling ahead. And there were canals in his town that transported raw coal. And when he came to America as an economic migrant with his family in 1818, he was just so impressed with the landscape and the wilderness and the natural part of America, And I think it was definitely influenced by what he had seen growing up. So he kind of romanticized uh, America. And it was in 1825 when he made his first trip from New York City up to the Catskill Mountains. And he thought they were the sublimest mountains in the world. And the year that Cole made his first trip up the Hudson River was the same year the Erie Canal opened. So I think that's really an interesting part because this kind of quickly led to Cole's own anxiety about the environmental and social impact of industrialization. He had seen the writing on the wall in Lancashire, where he watched factories and smoke stacks kind of consume the landscape. And if I'm correct,
1: I think the Catskills and the surrounding Hudson Valley were newly in vogue at this time. Why was
0: that? When Cole came to Catskill, if you can imagine... He was both delighted, but also saw escalating development. And unlike this idea that the landscape was pristine, that's really a myth. It was pristine in some ways, but it was also in the throes of industrial development. So there were over 40 tanneries, 50 iron foundries, paper mills, all kinds of different industry Perflating along the Hudson River, but also tourism. And a railroad was coming in that allowed people to make the trip from New York City up into the Catskill Mountains. And people were coming here because they wanted restoration and rest. But at the same time, of course, all of these different industries were also taking hold, like the tanning industry is one of the most significant sources of deforestation that coal witnessed.
1: I mean, I think that's very important and really interesting because... It shows you a moment in flux where here comes Thomas Cole, coming from Lancashire, this industrial wasteland in England, and he comes to the Hudson Valley and he sees this as being a pristine uh, Edenic site, but at the same time, it's something that is being despoiled by industry. And so he wants to protect it and he begins to paint the landscape there. So what exactly does he paint? How does he paint it? And why is that important?
0: would say that Thomas Cole actively used both his paintbrush and his pen you know he was also a writer and we're really lucky that he was writer so that's how we know so much about what was going on inside his mind you know I think he used both creative outlets to advocate for protection and balance in the natural world so for instance one of the earliest works that he made is a painting called Lake with Dead Trees Catskill in 1825 and it shows recently felled hemlock trees that were stripped as part of the process of tanning leather. And the tanning industry was really catastrophic. But like fracking, the tanners would settle into an area, strip the hemlock bark, and then move on to the next and kind of destroying and depleting the forest around them as they went. But also, it caused a lot of fires. And so, for instance, in another really amazing painting by Thomas Cole, Catskill Mountain House, The Four Elements, It's this just sublime, incredible painting that shows the Catskill Mountains, North South Lake, and there's earth, air, water, and there's fire. And we think that the fire is probably from the tanneries. And the hemlocks were nearly gone by the time Cole made that painting, which was in 1845. The year before Emerson published Nature, um, in 1835, Cole delivered his lecture on American scenery at the annual meeting of the New Academy to the New York Lyceum. And in this text, he wrote about elements of landscape. But he also wrote about his distress. He talked about how the beauties of the landscape were passing away and the ravages of the axe are daily increasing. And he was talking about how this beautiful place will be desecrated by what is called improvement. And improvement, of course, is the railroads and industry and all of these things. And he knew we needed wood and lumber, and we needed to build houses, but he was calling for balance. And can we do it in a way that the word sustainability I don't think existed, nor did the word environmentalist, but I think Cole was thinking a lot about sustainability and balance in the natural environment. Can we live within it?
1: It's telling about the historical grand scope that he was viewing this landscape in that he's probably best known today for a very unusual five-part allegorical landscape series called The Course of Empire from 1833 to 1836. What is that series about?
0: Well, The Course of Empire is one of my absolute favorites, and it's so relevant today. Like, when I look at it or I read Cole's writing about it, it's like, oh, right, that's happening right now. But it's a cyclical series. It's five paintings, and I view it as, you know, a series of a landscape transformed by human intervention, And it moves from this kind of pristine natural world to the final work, which is called Desolation. And so it shows the rise and fall of a human civilization. And I kind of think of it as a cautionary tale. It's a fascinating series. But if you look very closely at that painting, on the top of the ruins, there's birds' nests. And maybe within that is this idea that nature has the power to regenerate.
1: So about a decade after this cycle, a teenager named Frederick Church comes into Cole's life. How did that happen, and who was Frederick Church?
0: Frederick Church came to study with Thomas Cole when he was 19, and Cole at this point had established himself in Catskill, New York. You know, after coming up the first time in 1825, he fell in love with the Catskills, but he also fell in love with this young woman, Mariah Bartow. In 1836, he moved to Catskill full-time and got married. And it was actually Daniel Wadsworth who wrote to Cole and said, you know, there's this young man who is just a brilliant artist and has an eye for drawing. He's never drawn the landscape, but he really wants to. Can he come and study with you? And of course, it was Frederick Church. So Frederick Church came to study with Cole between the years of 1844 and 1846, and the relationship and the connection between the two artists, you know, even though he was there studying with Cole for only two years, lasted for the artist's entire lifetime and spanned their families.
1: What role did nature and conservation play in their relationship?
0: Cole took Church out into the landscape and taught him to be truthful to nature, which was kind of... Interesting because Cole was truthful to nature, but he was also thinking about allegory. And someone once said that Cole and Church were like Emerson and Thoreau. And so Cole is kind of waxing poetically or philosophically about nature as Emerson would. And Thoreau and Church are also poetic, but they're also coming of age in a time where science is rapidly developing and new information about science is happening. And that's another really fascinating thing is that Cole is part of the first part of the 19th century. And this is pre-Darwin, whereas Church is living in a different part of the time where he's using photographs and different things almost as specimens and souvenirs to inform his own work. And so in the exhibition Cross Pollination, for instance, we brought together some of Thomas Cole and Frederick Church's sketches that they made, including early, early sketches by Church, who, of course, has gone on to be one of the most important American landscape painters of the 19th century and in American art. But we have some of his early sketches of different trees on view next to sketches by Thomas Cole of Chestnuts. And you can see that Bull taught him to take very careful notes about the colors, the temperature, all of these details. And then they would go out into the landscape with these sketches and then come back and create major paintings on their easels. So they were both easel painters.
1: You know, I think one of the most salient things for a visitor who comes to the Thomas Cole house and then goes to Olana, which is Frederick Church's house, to come see this show, is the difference between these two houses. Because Cole lived in in a nice but fairly modest house with these incredible panoramic views of the Hudson and the surrounding mountainscape. But then you go across the Rip Van Winkle Bridge to Frederick Church's house, and it's this palatial fantasia, this architectural invention sitting on 250 acres of prime scenic real estate. I just wonder, how do you explain the difference between these two homes and the situations of these two men?
0: Olana, of course, is the landscape and the house. You know, it's not just the building. It's the entire 250 acres. You know, I think of it as a giant artwork. Olana is a giant artwork that he was actually framing the landscape itself. And he's so ahead of his time when you think about it. I just think Cole and Church were of different time periods. You know, Cole was an economic migrant from England, He was supporting his parents and his sisters. And then when he moved to Catskill and Cedar Grove, he was supporting his wife and the family there. They had four children. You know, church came from a different background and a different family and traveled a lot. So they were also inspired by different sources as well. But Cole was in Catskill from 1836 to 1848 when he passed away And one of my favorite stories, actually, is that when Church was a young artist studying with Cole, Cole brought him to this hill called Red Hill, which is now where Olana is based. So he had taken him there to sketch. It was years later in the 1860s when Church came back and purchased the farm in this area of Red Hill and began to develop and build Olana. And it's no coincidence that Church came back to this amazing landscape where he had first worked with his mentor and that he built Olana directly across from Cole's house. So I think that that is kind of a labor of love, but also just speaks to the long-term connection between the artists.
1: I want to zero in on one very interesting distinction between the artists, which is that, you know, Thomas Cole, during his prime, was one of America's most famous artists. And he, of course, is the famed founder of the Hudson River School. And then Frederick Church kind of took this to a different level, where he made these incredible, almost IMAX-style, sweeping landscape portraits, most famously Heart of the Andes, which he displayed in New York City with theatrical lighting to sold-out audiences that came and paid 25 cents to come and have the privilege of sitting there and looking at opera glasses at the incredible naturalistic precision and, you know, this real documentary style that he brought to this panorama And then that painting eventually sold for $10,000, which at the time was the highest price ever paid for a work by a living American artist. So Church came from money, but he also was an incredible businessman. So I want to get to the third figure in the title of the show, who is Martin Johnson Heed. Now, how did Martin Johnson Heed figure into this equation?
0: Well, Martin Johnson-Heade is fascinating because he is considered to be a Hudson River School painter, but he really was kind of following his own drum. And Heade was friends with Frederick Church, and they both had a studio at the 10th Street Studios. And we think that it was Church's travels to South America in part that inspired Heade to travel to South America and specifically to Brazil. But it was also Heade's obsession with hummingbirds that inspired his travels. So all of the artists were studying the natural world and making paintings and collecting things from all over. They traveled as part of their creative practice. On view in the exhibition, we have mineral collections and Cole has a collection of herbariums. The Church family has this incredible collection of bird eggs. Martin Johnson, he'd painted for over 65 years and he started doing portraits and then landscapes, and then still lifes, and marshes. And what's so interesting, you know, this whole exhibition, Cross Pollination, takes flight from Martin Johnson Heed's series, The Gems of Brazil, which we have 16 of them across Olana and at the Thomas Cole site. And The Gems of Brazil, when you look at them, they are these 12 by 10 inch paintings of hummingbirds and they're larger than life. They're within these Brazilian landscapes and in the gems, it seems there's pears and they're nesting and there's eggs. So it's kind of these life cycle pieces, but they are so starkly different from these kind of epic sweeping landscapes that Thomas Cole and Frederick church were making. And I think that's fascinating that he would do something so different, but he was, like I said, obsessed with hummingbirds and went to Brazil in 1863 because he wanted to make a book that would document as many hummingbird species as he possibly could. And hummingbirds are native only to the Americas. So in North America, there's the ruby-throated hummingbird. But he wanted to go to South America, not only because Church, his good friend, had gone and traveled extensively in South America, but also because he wanted to see as many hummingbirds as he could. And he had... Earlier, been to the London Zoological Society, John Gould had this big exhibition of stuffed hummingbirds, over 1,500. But he had said, you know, he's never even stepped foot on South American soil and seen these hummingbirds in their natural habitat. And so we think that's also part of what prompted him to go and find hummingbirds in their natural habitat. And he was just obsessed with them. And he arrived in Brazil in September of 1863, and we know that he painted at least 12 Gems of Brazil, and he was going to make a book called The Gems of Brazil, and the book was never realized. The story is that he didn't have enough money to do it, but also that the color of the chromolithographs were not as good as the actual birds. You know, the Gems of Brazil are called the Gems of Brazil because of their intense, amazing, jewel-like color, and they're even called things like amethyst wood star and topaz. We know from his notebooks that he was studying their behavior and aware that they belonged and were part of a natural habitat and aware that these pollinators had a symbiotic relationship with the flowers and the pollen makers and that they were all part of a habitat. And what I found so interesting about that is that, you know, this is 1860s, Our idea about science was changing at that time. You know, when Cole came of age, there was no Darwin. They were all definitely aware of Alexander von Humboldt, who wrote about the interconnectivity of nature and that all things in nature are related, interconnected. But it was Darwin and other thinkers during the time who proposed that nature was not a static thing that god had made that was just perfect and never changing but in fact nature was an evolving organic dynamic system of interdependences and relationships among elements also in 1866 the term ecology was coined ecology being the interconnection of natural elements and so this idea that the hummingbirds are part of the environment is kind of what inspired cross pollination and the way that he, as an artist, was calling upon both his imagination and his sense of wonder in looking at the hummingbirds and wanting to paint every single one he could possibly find because he was so moved by them, but also he was fascinated by their relationship to the flowers and their relationship to each other and their relationship to the environment. And I think that It's really interesting how that also resonates with new ideas in science in this latter part of the 19th century.
1: I mean, it's fascinating because you pointed out before how these tiny little birds are painted as though they are bigger and more foregrounded than the mountains. And that's not just a little bit of formal gamesmanship. It's really deeply invested in the cutting edge natural science of his day. I know that Darwin actually said that it was impossible to paint hummingbirds because their coloration was just so extraordinary that it couldn't be captured. Did he take that as kind of like a challenge, perhaps?
0: Yeah, it's funny you should mention that because there's this story that at that John Gould exhibition in London, Charles Dickens attended and had expressed the opinion that the most vivid colors of the painter's palette could not duplicate the hummingbirds' ever-varying tints art historians have said, well, maybe that was also what inspired he to go to Brazil and kind of be like, well, yes, I can. And then, of course, what's so funny about the end of that story is that the paintings are extraordinary. But he never actually made the book of chromolithographs because he didn't like the color plates. So it's kind of this funny story of color. But, you know, can artists imitate nature? I don't know.
1: Okay. So it's said that the modern conservation movement had its roots in the Hudson Valley of this period. So how did the work of these artists filter into this broader movement towards an idea that ecology was precious and needed to be protected?
0: So, you know, I mean, Church's work was profoundly important in helping to Usher in the Adirondack state parks. And we like to think that the work of Thomas Cole and Frederick Church did inspire a new awareness and reverence for the natural world and a call to protect what was there. So during Cole's time, they did not have protections on lands, but there was, for instance, the Forever Wild Act, which protected the whole Catskill Mountain landscape and the Catskill Parks. You know, in the Hudson Valley, what's interesting is to look at the entire timeline from George Perkins Marsh and all the way to Cole. There was a fantastic exhibition that looked at the history of environmental preservation at the New York Historical Society. I think it was a year or two back that traced it all the way from this time period, all the way to Rachel Carson and... Scenic Hudson in our part of the world, you know, Scenic Hudson is credited with kind of launching the contemporary environmental movement by saving Storm King.
1: How do you go about curating a contemporary art show to graft on to this legacy? And why is it important to bring contemporary artists into this conversation anyway?
0: Thomas Cole and Martin Johnson, he never knew each other personally, but they both wrote extensively to advocate for balance in the natural environment. So while Cole was writing, for example, a lecture on American scenery in 1841, saying that the hand of the woodman should be checked, Martin Johnson Heade was also concerned about unrestrained use of natural resources. And in his case, as you can imagine, his obsession with birds and hummingbirds, he was concerned about overhunting and the destruction of species in a lot of the American wetlands. And so under the pen name Didymus, he contributed regularly to a magazine called Forest and Stream, and a lot of his columns called attention to environmental degradation and specifically to regulate hunting of waterfowl because he was afraid there wouldn't be any left. And I can give you a quote. He said, no man has the right to call himself a sportsman would engage in the plume hunting traffic, even if he could clean up 5,000. And he went on to talk about the birds and hummingbirds in Florida. He said the plume birds of Florida have been thoroughly cleaned up by professional bird butchers, and they are scattered all through South America. Between the frost, taxidermists, and milliners, I fear they'll all be exterminated in a few years. So he definitely would have seen Cole's work. And so there's that relationship between those two artists. But what I love about these two artists and Frederick Church is that they were all really directly thinking about environmental sustainability and balance. And I think that their call for ecological awareness and action definitely reverberates among contemporary artists today who are also like Keith Cole, and Church. They are observing and engaging The natural world and directly confronting and wrestling with critical issues now related to biodiversity, habitat protection, and climate change. And so, artists today are also drawing on the latest scientific studies and thinking very critically about our own moment and what's happening. And so, the exhibition Cross Pollination was conceived as an entire whole exhibition of looking at artists who are looking at the interplay between art and science and art and environment and art and ecology as well as these relationships. But the contemporary artists are artists that we selected intentionally to go with this group of painters. There's just so many incredible projects out there.
1: So in the contemporary section of the show, there are no sweeping landscape paintings, at least in any kind of traditional sense. Why is that when you're, when you're in the literally in the homes, of Thomas Cole and Frederick Church, and what is there instead?
0: There are definitely incredible painters working today who are painting sleeping landscapes, but I feel like Cole and Church did that. So, for instance, Paula Hayes is an artist who has work at Olana and at the Cole site, and rather than paint a landscape on a canvas, she actually creates miniature ecosystems and sculpts actual living landscapes with plants. She has terrariums filled with plants and terrariums filled with minerals and crystals, which are also things that grow in the earth. And she created for the coal site a bird nesting habitat and created a quote-unquote landscape, if you want to think of it in terms of an artwork, which it is. But she created an entire new habitat for nesting birds.
1: She's a very interesting artist when it comes to the idea of institutional critique because when she partners with a museum or an exhibition site she has a certain kind of reciprocity that she demands for the work from the institution how does she work with museums
0: in the victorian age there was this moment in the 19th century where everyone wanted to go into the jungle and collect orchids and all these amazing specimens from the natural world so paula created these terrariums which are hand-blown glass terrariums and some of them are as old as 10 years old they're these kind of miniature ecosystems but I was talking with her and you know when I look at them I'm like oh these are mini ecosystems and we are stewards and we must take care of them she was like well you know it's so much about we want nature but we have a responsibility to also take care of it and to realize that we are part of it and we coexist with it and so when she has shown these living terrariums at other museums, she actually has them sign a contract that you agree on taking this artwork, which is a living artwork, that you will take care of it. And of course, it's this microcosm for take care of the natural world that we live in. Rather than closing things down by creating new habitats, Paula is giving something back to the natural world. It leads me to think about Mark Dion and Dana Sherwood's Pollinator Pavilion.
1: Tell me about that one. What is that?
0: Mark Dion and Dana Sherwood created for the exhibition, inspired by Heed's Gems of Brazil. They wanted to create an interactive sculpture that we look at it, and it's this gorgeous confection architectural pavilion that's filled with flowers and feeders, and it's painted, and it's just gorgeous. But it was not made for human animals. The interactive sculpture is actually created to provide sustenance to pollinators and to offer human visitors this kind of space to encounter them up close, particularly the ruby-throated hummingbird, which is the only hummingbird that's native to this region. So I kind of think about Heed going to Brazil to see the hummingbirds in person. And Mark and Dana were like, well, the next best thing to Heed's Gems of Brazil paintings is to actually see a hummingbird in person. And so they created this incredible pavilion as a feast for pollinators to give something back to pollinators rather than taking something from nature rather than mining nature. They wanted to give something back. And so this idea of reciprocity is very powerful, but it also allows us to kind of have a face-to-face encounter with pollinators and to realize that we all share the same space. But it also kind of invites these questions like, how do we interact with pollinators? How are we trying to shape or control nature? Or, you know, are we telling the pollinators to come to this pavilion where there's sugar water and plants? And we have this idea as people or the artists that we are in control and we can get these pollinators and hummingbirds to come to us. But in fact, we're not in control at all. You know, the hummingbirds will come if they want to. So I think that's kind of a really interesting shift.
1: I think it's really interesting to think of just how far we've come from the days of John James Audubon, who's you know seen as kind of one of the primogenitors of ecological art, who back in the 1820s used what people call today the uh, quote-unquote barrel of the shotgun method to, to create his portraits of the birds of North America, where he would shoot the birds and then he would stuff them And his great innovation was that instead of just letting them lie inert while he painted them, he would position them in these kind of realistic settings. And now artists are actually collaborating actively with animals and giving them a real sense of autonomy and respect. Why is pollinating and why are pollinators so interesting and relevant as a topic today?
0: You've probably read all of the articles about the insect apocalypse and the collapse of the beehives. You know, we're kind of in this moment where human impact on the natural world has had such effects that there's been great loss to habitats and then great loss to pollinators. And of course, you know that we are actually the same way that the hummingbirds are interdependent on the flowers in Heed's paintings. We are interdependent on pollinators for our food supply. You know, the majority of our plant-based food does require pollination. And so without pollinators, what are we eating, you know?
1: It's a very good question. And it is um, just one of the many strands that this show opens up. And, you know, as I said in the introduction, I think this is a really, really valuable and important show. And I recommend that people come and check it out because it really, it's like a palimpsest of a lot of important, environmental thought that stretches back over a century and a half. So thank you very much for coming on The Art Angle, Kate.
0: It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much.
1: That's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. And as a matter of fact, that's it for me hosting the show for a little while because my wife and I are about to have a baby. So we're very excited about it. And yes, you can probably expect to be hearing my new little co-host crying in the background when I return in the fall. In the meantime, I'm very happy to say that I will be turning over the reins of the art angle to a whole slew of guest hosts from the team at Artnet News, some of whom you know as mainstays of the pod, and others who you may not have met yet. They have some really exciting episodes in the works, and I'll be looking forward to tuning in from the changing table. So that's really it now for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. Also, if you have some feedback or maybe a recommendation for a future episode, go ahead and email us at podcasts at artnet.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at artnet.com. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manaloli, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you in the fall.